You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good morning and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Missy Ryan, national security correspondent here at The Post. I'm pleased to be joined today by our guest, Representative Mikey Sherrill of, of New Jersey. Congresswoman Sherrill, welcome to Washington Post Live. Thanks so much for having me. Congresswoman, let's start with Russia and Ukraine. Ukraine has performed remarkably well on the battlefield, despite a, a larger and better armed Russian military. But at the same time, Ukraine hasn't been able to gain substantial ground since November, as Russia throws more men and equipment at the war. What is your outlook for what Ukraine can accomplish in its coming spring offensive and in 2023? And what does that mean for hopes for a negotiated settlement uh, ahead? You know, I think uh, this was always the assumption that uh, protecting and defending territory is easier than taking back territory. And that has been slow going as anticipated. Um, and that is why the supplies sent to Ukraine by the United States and our NATO allies um, have been so incredibly important. And it has actually shown us um, what we need to do to make our supply chains more resilient as we see this modern warfare and the just sheer amount of munitions used. I'll tell you though, um, the Ukrainians, as you pointed out, have performed so amazingly well. Many of us say in the defense space, you know, that um, it was thought that the Russians were the second best army in the world. We are seeing they are the second best army in Ukraine. The innovative spirit of the Ukrainians has really pointed out, quite frankly, in many ways, why autocracies aren't good at this. Why having that one person like Putin in charge of everything has led to poor decision-making, poor innovation, poor response and nimbleness um, as the Russians try to continue to press into Ukraine. They've not been able to. Um, and the spring offensive is so important as we ensure Ukrainians, as they're slowly working, you know, to hold on to territory, to take down, to take back more of their territory. This spring offensive is where we really need to push in. You've seen the recent drawdown that we just had to push more equipment to the Ukrainians. Our allies were working with them around the globe to get more support for the Ukrainians so they really have the weaponry they need to be most effective this spring. Congresswoman, I'm glad that you mentioned the weaponry. As you know, the Ukrainian government has been calling uh, for months for an expanded array of weapons from the United States and its allies, namely fighter jets and longer range missiles. What's your position on that? And how do you think about the balance that the United States is trying to strike between giving Ukraine what it needs in this war and not uh, triggering unnecessary escalation with Russia? Well, I guess, you know, that has, has is certainly um, something that we don't want to see an escalation. But quite frankly, we need to ensure that Ukraine is successful in this war. And so I think looking at this as how important it is that we see a country like Ukraine supported by the democracies around the world as successful here has reverberations across the globe in places like China as we are looking to deter any aggression against Taiwan. 
We've even heard from our uh, South Korean allies that they think North Korea is watching this very, very closely. We certainly know different countries in the region are gravely concerned that should Russia be successful in Ukraine, their aggression won't stop there, that they will continue the forward push um, to areas surrounding Russia and areas that used to be part of the old Soviet bloc countries. So um, this is incredibly important, and that's why we're working so hard to get them everything they need. And we have certainly sent them. Um, they have been requesting Patriot, uh, Patriot missile systems. We've gotten them that. And we've been looking carefully at how to make sure our own forces and our allies are protected while at the same time surging to the Ukrainians the resources they need to win this. Just want to follow up with two specific uh, elements there. What about fighter jets? As a former pilot, I'd be uh, curious uh, to hear your thoughts on that. And then what do you think the United States should be doing vis-a-vis -vis supporting an eventual potential push by the Ukrainian armed forces into Crimea? There has been a lot of discussion about whether or not a military offensive, um, a land offensive into Crimea or, you know, an intensified attack of missile strikes or whatever could actually have a different, uh, qualitatively different response from Russia. What's your thought on that? So I think as far as fighter jets, uh, I certainly think that's an area we should explore um, and make sure that uh, we are doing everything we can to support them. There is also an understanding of, um, as we look at all the resources that Ukraine needs to continue this and the uh, amount of money we've appropriated and what we can get to them and how quickly we can get it to them um, and if it's going to be ready in time for the spring offensive, those are all the calculations that we in Congress and that the administration um, with the DOD, those are the calculations we're all working to make. How, with the resources we have, the time we have, can we best support Ukraine? But I'm certainly open to sending them those fighter jets based on those calculations and what seems to be the next best step forward. Um, that will take a bit of time, just given the training pipeline of the pilots and getting those resources over there. And then um, as far as Crimea, you know, certainly this is, this is um, territory that Russia took back from Ukraine, um, and that is something that the Ukrainians regard as their home, as their sovereign territory, and they are making the decisions as to where they are going to move forward. Um, so I don't think Crimea is off the table, certainly though that I think where we look at where some of the surges are to date, uh, Ukraine, the Ukrainians have been more focused on other areas, but we will see in the spring offensive what the decisions are. Great, thank you. I'm gonna ask you a couple more Ukraine questions and then we're gonna move on to the Asia Pacific. First of all, on the one year uh, anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, you went to the house floor and said this was not just a Ukrainian problem, but a quote, battle between democracy and authoritarianism worldwide. Are you worried that this message is not getting sufficient traction? This message of the global stakes of this conflict is not getting sufficient traction among American voters, the American public, um, because as you know, polls show diminished support for continuing American support at this very high level to Ukraine. Um, and we've seen uh, sort of a, a bit of increasing skepticism from um, some members of Congress, notably um, a small group in the Republican Party. What's your thought on that? 
You know, I think it's interesting because I have a large Ukrainian American population. Um, and even beyond that population here in my district, there's a great deal of support and understanding here about how necessary it is that the Ukrainians prevail, how important it is that 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 they ensure that Russia does not then decide to continue their aggression. Um, and and so there's a great deal of support in my district. And I think in many places across the country, we are seeing these pockets uh, on the far right and, um, and, and this messaging, this sort of um, isolationist, uh, you know, draw down, draw back insular um, view from the far right, which I think is a, a great misunderstanding of the place of the United States in the world. I would certainly say our role and responsibility of protecting democracy across the world, um, which I feel, given uh, the predominance of the United States, our economy, um, and our ability to do that, we have a responsibility. But I would also say that for the benefit of the United States, as we see our uh, how well we do in a rules-based order with democracies flourishing across the world, how that helps us with our allies and partners um, with human rights, um, but also with trade and the economy. And I, I don't think that maybe is well understood on the far right of how this, this is so important um, to our values and rights, but also to um, our ability to conduct business across the world and, and open market economies um, and, and how that works. I see, you know, I see sort of this, this desire to withdraw from the world and that the United States flourishes as a leader of democracies across the world. And when democracy flourishes, uh, that helps the United States as well. And I will tell you that is a very bipartisan opinion in places like the House Armed Services Committee, the Foreign Affairs Committee. So with people who deal with these international relationships and understand how important they are to the United States, um, there is widespread support and widespread understanding of just how critical it is that the Ukrainians win and how that actually is uh, the best option that we have, the most economical option that we have in ensuring that they uh, stop this Russian aggression now, because quite frankly, should other countries see that this is possible? Should China see, hey, we can go take over territory without the world uh, caring or standing up in a defense of that area? They will make those decisions. Other areas around the world will become less stabilized um, as we try to move forward into a new era of peace. Okay, I'm just going to squeeze in very quickly one reader question on Ukraine, and then we're going to move on. It's from Del Pendergast from Virginia, who asks, with its advantages in population and military resources, won't Russia likely win a long war of attrition? And you know, we hear that a lot. Um, you know, the, the Russian forces have not uh, done very well, but you know, they've got a lot more people and weapons than Ukraine. You know, I think this is where an autocracy is so weak um, because you have one person who is his determining the best path forward for Russia, one person um, controlling the communications and moving the nation into what I would say are, are very kind of rocky waters here. So you see the economy of Russia doing incredibly poorly. 
Before this war started, you saw Russia as seen as, as one of the preeminent powers of the world. Now it's hard to see that they will come out of this war as, as anything more than sort of a puppet state of China. You see China fomenting this war as long as possible to continue to drive down gas prices, and then they will um, reap the benefits of that as they get the raw materials out of Russia with the pipeline deal they're working on that they continue to not come to an agreement on as they drive those prices down. Um, you see that a lot of the talent of Russia has either died in this horrible war, um, and then the casualty numbers are are really incredibly high and devastating. And then you also see those people that don't want to be conscripted into this war fleeing Russia. So a great deal of talent there. And so you're seeing a generation of young people in Russia that are almost wiped out, um, which is gonna be very, very devastating for the economy as they try to build back. Um, so all of this is to say that um, you're not seeing this in any way aiding the future of Russia. And so the idea that, that somehow they are going to want to keep this going on forever is hard to see. You also see China now wanting to engage more in diplomacy, and now they seem to be in large part having a great deal of control over Russia. And they are starting to say um, that they would not like to see, China would not like to see this um, go on forever. Of course, their vision of what this looks like at the end is very different from, say, the Ukrainians' vision or what the Western world and NATO allies would like to see from this. So that is a conflict. Um, but yes, it has always been concerning the number of people that the Russians have, but their military hardware has turned out to be um, far less modern and useful than we had anticipated. They are suffering in their supply chain and how much they can produce for this war. And so it's it's certainly something that we're all cognizant of and concerned about, but I don't think we should somehow think that that will give them the final advantage in the end. Sure. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned China because that's our next subject. Um, I'd like to ask you, how do you think the war in Ukraine is impacting the U.S. effort to prepare for uh, a potential military conflict with China? Is it distracting the United States from that effort? As you know, uh, the Pentagon struggled for, for many years, for more than a decade, to actually um, embrace the pivot to China um, and execute that. Um, or is it giving us lessons that were able to actually employ in better preparing for a potential conflict. You mentioned learning um, about the supply chain, about you know rates of munitions, um, expenditures, and all of that. Uh, what do you think the net res result is here? I would say the latter. Um, I have to tell you, I am a veteran of the global war on terror and you know, while that war uh, went on far too long, um, I will say that it kept our military forces at a high rate of readiness and capability. And I think that's what was so surprising um, when Russia entered into this war and the Russian troops were so ill-prepared and did not do very well. I think a lot of that comes down to the fact they had not been fighting forces in a very long time and um, did not were not as capable as they entered into the war with Ukraine. I think we have very capable forces who are battle tested and battle ready. We also now through Ukraine 
have done a great deal to make our supply chains more resilient and are continuing to work towards that. Understanding exactly what it takes to keep uh, supply chains moving and munitions moving in a very modern um, high rate of usage war when we're using munitions at a rate we haven't seen in a very long time. So all of these things make our forces more capable and more ready. Um, it's, you know, it's unfortunate. Um, and I think that's why we're all hoping um, that we can continue to support this spring offensive in Ukraine and see um, the Ukrainians successful and then determining uh, how to go forward in a, a more peaceful way. We really hope for that. But it has made, it has had the effect of making our forces incredibly competent and capable. And that includes, as you said, as you kind of pointed out, our supply chains. Um, we have World War II munitions factories, manufacturing factories, that we have been wanting to modernize and we've been moving towards that on the Tactical Air and Land Subcommittee, which I sit on. However, this has certainly, I think, brought more attention uh, to that need. And then we also are looking at our supply chains, how to make them more resilient, how to ensure that we're not, we don't have raw materials from China or controlled by China in our supply chains. That's been a very important part of what I do and what my base does here at Picatinny Arsenal. So these things, these are the things that are making our force better, um, probably on almost every level than I think any force on earth. So it's um, it's a sad but true statement that 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 you know once your military is exposed to these types of things, they do become far more capable. And I think that's an advantage we have that nobody else really on earth has. I have many questions for you, but I think we probably have time for just one more. Um, and I'm going to ask you about Taiwan. Um, we've had U.S. military officials describe the, a potential Chinese attack or invasion uh, attempt on Taiwan as a matter of when, not if. Um, what is your view on this? And what do you think the United States re response should be if that occurs? Well, I would like to take it back a step because I think we want to make it an if. We want to make sure that we work so hard at deterrence that we can we can uh, make China understand that this is a very, very bad idea. So certainly making sure that the forces in Taiwan are well trained, that they have the capabilities they need, they have the munitions they need, they have the hardware they need is very, very important. And I know those were some of the conversations that members of my Committee, the Strategic Competition with China Committee, the Chinese Communist Party Committee, um, they are meeting now and have been meeting um, to ensure that we understand just what is it's going to take to deter China. I also think, as as I, I sound like a broken record, but that's one of the reasons it's so critically important that the Ukrainians do well here. I would argue that again, and it's hard because in autocracies, decisions are made in ways that don't benefit the people of the state, but benefit one person in the state and the power of one person in that state. But I would say, if you are any rational, reasonable um, person looking at where Russia stands now vis-a-vis -vis where Russia stood at the start of the war with Ukraine, you would decide that it is a bad idea to invade the sovereign territory of another region. Um, so that is that is what we need to work on now. And I know your next guest will be great at talking about that. He testified before um, the House Armed Services Committee and has a great deal of experience in the Indo-PACOM. And, um, and I think the key thing in this area is deterrence, deterrence, deterrence.
All right. Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. Um, but we want to thank you, Representative Cheryl, for joining us here today on Washington Post Live. Well, thank you so much for having me. And uh, I will be back in a few minutes with retired Admiral Harry Harris. Thanks. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hi, I'm Kathleen Koch. Military readiness is so vital today as the United States faces increased uncertainty on the global stage. And key to that readiness is, is upgraded technology to keep our forces competitive. The Pentagon has just settled on a plan to improve the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter Jets engine. And here to talk with me about that and what it will mean is Jennifer Lotka, Vice President of the F-135 program at Pratt & Whitney. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you, Kathleen. I'm happy to be here. Jennifer, could you give us a brief history of uh, the Pratt and Whitney F-135 engine that has been powering the F-35 for more than 20 years? Yes, of course. So the F-135 is the most advanced and powerful uh, fighter jet engine that has really ever been developed. It has, uh, or it provides 40,000 pounds of thrust. It has an unmatched uh, low observable signature, and it has the most advanced integrated control system really ever created. In terms of where we stand right now, from a production standpoint, we have been at full rate production for several years. We um, celebrated a milestone this past summer with the 1000th engine delivery. And we're very focused on sustainment right now, um, building up our maintenance network and making sure we are taking care of the fielded fleet. Why is it so important to improve the F-35's propulsion system with the engine core upgrade right now? Yeah, so the air vehicle, the F-35 platform has had three major upgrade programs uh, over the, the life of the program thus far. And the engine has not been a part of any of those upgrades. Hmm. Every upgrade has brought on more weapon systems that are requiring more cooling and more electric power, electrical power. Um, we are on the verge of seeing block four, which is the fourth major upgrade, uh, come onto the jet. And that will those weapon systems will require more power and more cooling. And that is why right now is the time we have to upgrade the core of the motor in order to keep our maintenance um, limited and costs down. It's really an enabler to the platforms and the capabilities that are on the jet. Fascinating. So for the last couple of years, you have been engaged in, in this unofficial competition to modernize the F-35 with the options being basically to go with an entirely new engine or upgrade the existing one. So what makes the engine core upgrade the best modernization option? So there are options. I wouldn't necessarily call it a competition. Um, the engine core upgrade, the ECU, is the only solution that is trivariant. So there are three variants of the F-35 jet, an A, a B, and a C. 
and the existing engine fits inside all three variants. A new engine only would fit inside an F35A. So ensuring that we are taking care of all of our customers um, with the upgrade is critical. So that would be point number one. Um, point number two is around schedule. So block four capabilities will be coming onto the jet starting in somewhere between 2028 and say 2030. The engine core upgrade is the only solution that will field fast enough to um, have a meaningful capability in the field. We will be able to ramp our production and field faster than a new engine uh, because it's limited scope uh, upgrade on an existing engine. And then lastly, I would say it's the most cost-effective solution by far. So upgrading the existing engine is a third of the development cost of a, of a brand new engine, and it uses all the same production and sustainment infrastructure, which saves the, the program billions of dollars uh, across the entire life. And as you said, it works for the F-35 flown by the Air Force, the Navy, and the Marines, all the variants. In conclusion, the president's budgeting did include funding for the engine core upgrade, but not the adaptive engine transition program, the replacement, total replacement, replacement of an engine. So what are your thoughts on that decision? So we're very pleased with the clarity provided by the president's budget. Adaptive engine technology is the sixth generation technology. It is, um, it is absolutely vital uh, to the country, to national security, and it's the most advanced propulsion technology out there. So the president's budget did fully fund um, the next generation um, air dominance program and the propulsion to go along with it. Fifth gen technology, propulsion technology is um, what's right for a fifth generation jet, which is what the F-35 is. So we think that the president's budget aligns well um, and, and sort of demonstrates this logic, and we're very pleased with the outcome. Jennifer Lotka, Vice President of the F-135 Program at Pratt & Whitney. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. And now I'll toss it back to the Washington Post. And now, back to Washington Post Live. Hi, and welcome to Washington Post Live. My name is Missy Ryan, National Security Correspondent here at The Post. And I'm pleased to be joined here today by my next guest, the former commander of US Pacific Command, retired Admiral Harry Harris. Uh, Admiral, welcome to Washington Post Live. Great to be with you, Ms. Ryan. Thank you. Well, we're going to start our conversation today by focusing on the balance <clears throat> of power in the Pacific. You've said that you prefer the term adversary rather than competitor when it comes to China. Why is that? Because I believe that that more accurately depicts what China is uh, with regard to the United States. They have viewed us as the adversary for decades, uh, and they're not uh, ashamed or shy about acknowledging that publicly. Uh, and we continue to increase our uh, description of, of the PRC uh, and now we view them as competitors, uh, but I think that a more accurate term is adversary, and, and that term more uh, adequately uh, frames our relationship uh, with the PRC going forward, in my opinion. 
When we talk to U.S. military officials, they describe China as the most significant military threat to the United States, and they're certainly attempting to execute uh, intensified, accelerated competition and preparation for a potential conflict with China. At the same time, it does differ than other military threats the United States has, fa has faced in the past in that the U.S. economy is so deeply intertwined with the Chinese economy. How do you think we should think about that fact um, when, we th when we're thinking about, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, um, competition, military competition with China? Yeah, I agree with you uh, in, in the dichotomy that exists in uh, our relationship, our military uh, competitor relationship with China going forward, when you consider the economic throw weight uh, that's involved in our relationship, both on our side and on the PRC's side. Uh, that said, uh, this is the job for politicians and uh, diplomats uh, to underscore and uh, emphasize uh, that relationship, the, the tie-in between the economic piece on the one hand and the military challenge uh, on the other. Uh, even so, America is a great uh, nation. Uh, we can walk and chew gum at the same time, uh, and we need to be able to do both. We need to be able to defend ourselves our, and our allies uh, against aggression from the PRC, uh, and then we need to uh, defend our own economy uh, against the likelihood uh, that uh, the PRC will attempt to do something in that space as well. Uh, you've said that you believe the 2020s are the decisive decade when it comes to this region. What do you believe the United States needs to do immediately to uh, get up to speed and, and be as prepared as it needs to be? Well, let me, let me uh, back up just a moment and explain what I meant by that. So there have been some senior military leaders of late uh, that have said things like 2025 uh, or 2027. What I said when I was in uniform was the 2020s was the decade of danger. And I think this is the decisive decade uh, as we uh, go into the, the second half and then the conclusion of the 2020s. I think what the United States needs to do is continue to remain uh, at speed. I don't think there's a coming up to speed that's required. We already have a significant military advantage uh, over the PRC in terms of things like anti submarine warfare uh, and submarine warfare. Our carrier strike groups, uh, our Air Force Air Wings, uh, and our Army and Marine Corps. So we have a tremendous capability as it is. As Secretary Austin has said, he's focused on the pacing threat uh, that's the PRC. I think we need to continue to uh, resource our military so that we uh, continue to remain up to speed uh, and ahead of the PRC in all dimensions of military warfare. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned the budget uh, because I do have a related question, and that's, um, you know, the United States has by far the largest military budget in the world, and we have the most sophisticated defense industrial base. At the same time, it can take years for new defense programs to come online. And uh, at this moment, with the war in Ukraine, we're really having to scramble to um, address surge production um, constraints when it comes to ammunition and other weapons. And China's pace of innovation and production has been uh, very impressive in recent decades. How do we make sure that we can innovate and produce in the way that we need to? Well, that's the challenge, right? Uh, we have to continue to innovate. And I used to say we have to innovate or die. We have to innovate to stay ahead uh, of the PRC and other adversaries. But remember, we have one thing uh, that, that the PRC does not have, 
We have friends, allies, and partners. The PRC has uh, North Korea, uh, Afghanistan, and, and Russia. Uh, uh, and we see how good uh, Russia is doing uh, in this fight against Ukraine, uh, as Rep. Cheryl uh, discussed in, in good detail beforehand. So that's what we have uh, as our strength. Uh, it's our significant asymmetric strength that we have uh, over the PRC and other adversaries in the world. Yeah, I'm, and I'm going to uh, read an um, audience question that we have, and I feel like you might reference those uh, partners and allies. The question is comes from Greg uh, Peaburn from Colorado, and Greg asks, what, what is key for the United States to maintain its military superiority in an ever-changing world? Admiral? Well, um, I, I think I've already talked about it. One is we have to maintain our technological and innovative edge over the PRC and all dimensions uh, of warfare. And two, we have to continue to resource and invest in uh, our friends, allies, and partners. We're not gonna do this alone. Uh, and our, uh, the capabilities that are resident in our allies, not only in, in the East Asia uh, or in the Indo-Pacific, but in, in the world really uh, is significant. And we have to continue to uh, emphasize and resource those relationships in my opinion. Uh, let's go back to China and now talk about Taiwan. Um, President Biden has said four times now that if the that uh, the United States would come to the aid of Taiwan, um, of uh, uh, Taiwan if that sovereign country was attacked by China. Um, but you have said that you would prefer an even clearer articulation of policy from the administration. What would you like to hear? And is it time to end the the um, policy of strategic ambiguity when it comes to America's response to a potential Chinese invasion of Taiwan? Sure, it's, it's an important question. And I've spoken recently uh, quite extensively uh, on my opinion that we need to forego the uh, 40 plus year policy of strategic ambiguity in favor of strategic clarity. By strategic clarity, I like to see uh, President Biden's commentary translated into policy. Uh, and so by that, I mean, uh, we, we owe it, I believe, to three constituencies to be clear on the question of whether the United States would defend Taiwan if the PRC forcibly tried uh, to bring Taiwan under its fold. We owe it to the Taiwanese so that they then can make the decisions that they have to make on, on uh, whether to uh, uh, upgun their military, uh, resist the PRC, or to capitulate and become part of the PRC. We owe it to the Chinese. Uh, they need to understand what we will do if they make the decision uh, to attack Taiwan. But most importantly, we need to tell the American people that we owe it to the American people whose daughters and sons are they going to do the fighting uh, if it comes to that. You know, we had uh, this uh, situation in the Cold War against the Soviet Union, and it, almost everyone bought into the idea that we would uh, have to be prepared and we might have to actually fight uh, the Soviets uh, in, on the plains of Northern Europe and, and globally. Uh, but we don't have that view. Uh, of Taiwan and the PRC. And I think we owe it to the American people uh, to be clear uh, on that. And you're not worried that that could actually precipitate China to um, actually you know, make a decision to invade that President Xi could say, well, now that we know that um, you know, the United States will respond to Taiwan, let's do this now before the United States can um, add additional resources to the Asia Pacific before the United States makes additional innovations in hypersonics, for example? Um, actually, quite the contrary. 
Uh, I, I think uh, ambiguity in the 21st century is dangerous. It itself precipitates uh, the, the potential uh, for conflict. Clarity, on the other hand, assuming that the clarity is that we, we, we would defend Taiwan, uh, that clarity, I think, uh, is a detractor uh, from uh, any potential uh, conflict. So I think it actually increases stability rather than decreases stability. Now, one other element that we've seen um, in terms of the, the friction uh, between the United States and China and the tension in this bilateral relationship has been the Chinese response to um, the U.S., British, and Australian deal um, on nuclear-powered submarines, the so-called AUKUS deal. Um, can you tell our, our, our listeners and our viewers how significant do you believe that deal is for the Western response to China's power projection in the Pacific? And what does it mean uh, to have this, this shift there? Yeah, so uh, the AUKUS deal, Australia, UK, and the United States, the AUKUS deal is significant. We, we the United States and the, and the Brits, we are going to sh share our crown jewels, which is our nuclear submarine technology uh, with another country, in this case, Australia. We're going to share uh, those crown jewels with Australia, with a view toward Australia building its own nuclear submarines. The submarine is the, is the original stealth platform. And a nuclear submarine goes further, goes deeper uh, than a, a conventional diesel-powered submarine. So this is a significant capability. And the AUKUS deal that was announced a few weeks ago is, in, is really a three-part deal. The first part we're actually executing now. Well, we're, we're going to uh, increase the number of submarine port visits uh, that we have uh, in Australia. The Brits will do the same. And we'll start training on board our submarines and our nuclear power programs uh, Australian submariners and engineers, uh, uh, the, the industrial base engineers. The second part of the program uh, will involve uh, selling to Australia uh, our Virginia-class submarines, three uh, to start with, with an option of two more. And then by the end of the, 30, uh, of the 2030s, beginning of the 2040s, by this time, uh, Australia's industrial base should be upgun to the level that they can begin building uh, their own nuclear submarines. They have a a very capable uh, industrial base today. They build nuclear, uh, I'm sorry, they build diesel class, uh, Collins class submarines today. They, ha they have that uh, know-how, but the, the new part is to build a, a nuclear part of it, the, uh, just, the nuclear power plant. Just to follow up on that, do you think that AUKUS and you know uh, Australia having these nuclear powered submarines, does that change China's calculus at all when it thinks about, you know, these are the, uh, naval maneuvers we're going to conduct, these are what we're going to do in the disputed territories in the Pacific. Should we expect some sort of real change, or is this more just about strengthening the Western capability? Well, it, it's both. It's going to significantly increase uh, the Western capability uh, in the Indo-Pacific and with a nuclear submarine globally. Uh, but it also will affect, I believe, the PRC's calculus, uh, not only on Taiwan, but how it conducts its operations uh, globally as well. Okay. Uh, Admiral, you spent three years as the U.S. ambassador to South Korea, um, so I'd like to ask you about North Korea. At this stage, with you know, repeated missile launches from North Korea and presumably advances to its nuclear program, how significant a military threat does North Korea pose to the United States, and what is the best strategy for containing North Korea? Yeah, so the, the North Korea's uh, military capability against the United States increases each day. Uh, as Kim Jong-un perfects uh, his 
a nuclear program, a nuclear weapons program, and the means to deliver them. So, uh, you know, his ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles, can now reach the United States. Uh, so it becomes a direct threat to our homeland. Uh, but we have uh, U.S. troops and families and business and women and business throughout the, the, the world, throughout the region. And those are our threat as well. The, our military uh, footprint in South Korea, our military footprint in uh, uh, Japan, uh, in Guam, uh, where America's Day begins and all of that. So the threat from North Korea is real. What we do about it uh, is to ensure that our capability remains strong uh, and that our alliance with South Korea uh, remains strong. And I believe that our alliance with South Korea, which we're going to celebrate our 70th year uh, this year, uh, is significant. And we have to continue to resource that uh, so that uh, both uh, our forces uh, and our allied forces in South Korea can meet the threat from North Korea. Do you think there's any near to medium term possibility of, um, you know, resuming some substantive negotiations with North Korea or reaching some sort of negotiated agreement on its nuclear program? Well, you know, hope is always a course of action, uh, I guess. <laughs> but I have maintained most recently, and I think that uh, the time for negotiation with North Korea is over uh, because of the actions from North Korea and the continued belligerence. Uh, against South Korea and the United States uh, from Pyongyang. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we can't hope for some breakthrough. But in the meanwhile, we have to continue to resource our ability to respond to threats from the North and not give anything away in the hopes of North Korea returning to the negotiating table. You know, give things away as an outcome of negotiations. I mean, that's why you have negotiations. But let's not give them away ahead of time just to entice them back to the negotiating table. That's a fool's errand. Uh, in my opinion. I want to ask you a question linking um, the Korean Peninsula to uh, Ukraine, and I know it's not hasn't been your area of focus, but as we've discussed um, the potential for a, a negotiated settlement in Ukraine, I, I've heard people reference um, the um, armistice on the Korean Peninsula, you know, that um, uh, came into effect decades ago. And I'm just wondering, you know, having observed um, that situation up close. Do you think it's a workable arrangement? Um, and should you know, we, should we um, aim for something like that when it comes to Russia and Ukraine? Yeah, you know, uh, the armistice has worked very well uh, to maintain peace uh, on the Korean Peninsula uh, since its inception uh, in 1953. Well, I don't know if that's uh, uh, that parallel works for Ukraine. This has to be a Ukrainian decision. We can't dictate to Ukraine uh, the way forward with regard to how they should negotiate with Russia on the end of their war. Okay. Um, and I think we hopefully have time for one or two more questions. Um, I'd like to ask you, the president of South Korea and the prime minister of Japan recently held their first summit meeting in 12 years. What is the ge geopolitical importance of improved relations between Japan and South Korea? Look, it's significant. Uh, I mean, uh, they are both our allies, but they don't get along with each other uh, well. Uh, and, and all those reasons are important reasons. Uh, there are historical reasons and all of that. But I think that what President Yoon has done with Prime Minister Kishida in Japan, uh, they've demonstrated true statesmanship. I mean, President Yoon has made this significant outreach uh, to Japan. As you said, the first uh, sitting South Korean president to visit Japan uh, in 12 years. Uh, and this is not uh, an insignificant act. As a matter of fact, I think it's just true statesmanship. 
And he's doing this despite very low polling uh, support uh, in South Korea for his outreach uh, to Japan. Despite all that, he's doing what I think is the right thing to do. Uh, but what I think is really irrelevant, he's doing what he believes is the right thing to do uh, to mend those relationships so that Japan uh, and South Korea can go forward together and not discounting those issues in the past, which are important issues, but moving forward uh, to set the conditions for um, a better region for both countries and for their uh, ally, the United States. I'm going to ask you uh, maybe a last question going back to China and, and Taiwan. Um, and hopefully now that you're out of uniform, you can uh, comment on this. We've seen uh, uh, just this week House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and a group of bipartisan lawmakers met with uh, the president of Taiwan as she transited the United States. You know, we've also seen, um, you know, China obviously was not happy about that. We've seen China's um, response to um, other engagements between the U.S. lawmakers and Taiwan, including uh, Nancy Pelosi's visit um, last year. What do you think about these engagements? And do you think that maybe the lawmakers should hold back from doing these things in the in the sense that they um, intensify the friction between the United States and China? Look, let me be clear. I supported uh, then Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, uh, and even more so after the PRC threatened her, Taiwan, and the United States if she went. I mean, she really had no choice at that point but to go. Uh, I'm, I'm completely supportive of Speaker uh, McCarthy's uh, visit uh, with uh, President Tsai uh, in California, uh, doubly so uh, after the PRC threatened him in the United States uh, if, they, if uh, he went ahead with the visit. I mean, the PRC is, is making us, in, in one respect, uh, do these visits because of their belligerence and threatening behavior uh, if we do them. Uh, I, I agree with uh, Speaker uh, McCarthy's commentary. Well, he said that America's support for the people of Taiwan uh, remains um, resolute, uh, unwavering, and bipartisan. And the bipartisan part uh, is very important. Um, Rep. McFaul, uh, the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, is in Taiwan today. And he talks about the U.S. support uh, send, sending a strong signal to the PRC uh, and, uh, and how important it is for, uh, for us to support uh, Taiwan. Uh, just going back to the U.S. military budget, uh, you said that we need to make sure that the U.S. military is properly resourced in order to um, adequately compete or, uh, with China or prepare for a potential conflict with China. Do you think that $850 billion is enough? Um, you know, the Congress tends to add money onto the military budget these days, um, and there is strong bipartisan support for strong defense spending. But at the same time, you know, the United States has tons of other priorities that it needs to think about. You think of um, uh, social spending in the United States that, um, you know, is under pressure. We obviously have a big uh, fiscal um, uh, uh, crunch to think about. I'd love your thoughts on that. Yeah, so um, granted, uh, I agree with you. We have a big uh, military budget, uh, $850 billion or, 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 or thereabouts. Uh, thank you, Congress. Uh, for supporting uh, that budget and increasing it. Uh, not only do we have a large military budget, we have a large set of military responsibilities around the globe. Uh, we have allies that we support uh, and we have operations that are ongoing around the world. And, and not discounting the importance of all of the other programs uh, that the federal budget funds, including the social programs that you mentioned. 
But those programs fall to naught if we are attacked uh, globally and if we're not ready to meet those threats uh, from our adversaries around the globe. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time, so we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Admiral Harris, and we hope to see you again soon. You bet. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.